Time to Travel with Karen Key. And a very good evening to you and welcome to this week's edition of Time to Travel. On the show this evening, I'll be chatting with Greg Beadle, author of Bike, The Longer Road, about his motorbike adventures across southern Africa. Gallio Sense of Rim of Africa and Michelle Frandorf, an intrepid hiker, will be joining me to chat about the incredible Rim of Africa hike, which, if you do the entire thing in one go, will take you 52 days. And believe it or not, some people actually do this. And then Colin Bell will be joining me in studio this evening, and we'll be chatting about Africa's finest. It's a new book he's produced with David Bristow, which tells remarkable stories of Africa's remaining untouched wilderness. And just a reminder that if you need any information about something you hear on Time to Travel this evening, you can find it on Facebook. Just go to Travel on SAFM. If you'd still like to contact me directly, you can email me on travel at safm.co.za. Well, that's the lineup for this evening. I do hope you'll stay with me and enjoy the show here on SAFM. Time to Travel with Karen Key. Well, the Rim of Africa is a 52-day hike from the Cedarburg to George through the Cape Mountains. It comprises eight sections, so you can do it bit by bit. You don't have to do the entire 52 days in one go. And joining me this evening is Gallio Saints from Rim of Africa and Michelle Frandorf, an intrepid hiker who has already walked five of the eight stages, and I believe she will be continuing on her quest for stage six next month. Michelle, good evening. Welcome to the show. Good evening, Corinne. And Gallio, good evening. Welcome to you. Yes, good evening, Karen. So let's start with you. The Room of Africa is an amazing initiative. Tell me how this all came about. Well, it came about with um, my colleague and co-founder, Ivan Grunhoff, who um, was uh, kind of instructed by a sangoma to go walk about in the mountains. And, um, well, he ended up doing that. And in the process of doing this epic sort of solo journey, um, kind of envisaged this, this, this route as being a possible... You know, if he could do it, surely other people should be doing a similar kind of thing. And he kind of conceived of the idea of Rim of Africa in that, in that journey of his, yeah. Now, I mentioned that it's in eight sections. So tell me about, and the 52 days, tell me about the different sections or the different types of, of hikes. Because apparently there are four different ways that you can experience this journey. Yes, Michelle, there's, there's numerous different ways. Rim of Africa, um, if one just gets a little bit of a geographic picture, we kind of start up in the northern Cedarburg and essentially the route follows the entire Cape Fold mountain range right down all the way to Ceres and from Ceres then across the Hicks River Mountains and then onto the Langeberg Mountains and that, those head all the way along that beautiful sort of interface between the Southern Cape and the small Karoo and, and end in the sort of foothills of the Otaniqua Mountains outside George. So it's about a 650-kilometer distance um, as you walk. And uh, clearly, you know, there are very few people who have both the time and, and the energy to do, sort of complete that in a single go. So we've looked at sort of natural, what we call natural sections of the route and broken it up accordingly. Um, so you can do a section from anywhere from, I think the shortest is about four days and the longest is about 12 days. But and as you mentioned, you can actually link those sections on as you like. And like Michelle did last year, for instance, she walked uh, the first five stages. And I think if I'm correct, Michelle, what was that, about 28 days? Yeah, 28 days. Yeah. Gosh, so, but Michelle, to, to come to you now, I introduced you as an intrepid hiker, and I was looking through some of your, I would you call it, your hiking CV, if you like. I mean, you've, you've done the most amazing things. You've hiked in India and Nepal. You've done the Zambezi White River rafting. You've been skiing in Mont Blanc. You've done a little bit of trail running up to 21 kilometers, which for most of us, I think, would be a lot of trail running. Um, what inspires you to do this? 
Karen, I think for me it's the physical challenge, definitely the physical challenge. And yeah, it is to restore your energy levels and it builds um, character, I think, in the sense that, you know, you develop tenacity, resilience, and that keeps me focused. And obviously also health, you know, it's, it's healthy to stay fit. So how have you found this trail? I have done a hike in Nepal, the Annapurna circuit, and that was, a, a, I think, a 14-day trail. And I thought, let me look at my own country and see what's available in terms of extreme and adventure hiking. And I came across Rome of Africa. So uh, while I was doing another hike from Hockerville to Edo Elephant, um, Gali was a, a guide there as well and told me about the Rome of Africa. So that was quite exciting and very adventurous. And you're enjoying it? I enjoy every bit of it. It's um, I try and keep fit. I get up every morning 20 past 4 for the gym. So I really do keep fit. Okay, and, um, we're all still sleeping at that point. <laughs> yes, so uh, whenever the opportunity comes, I would like to join in for a hike. So I, I make sure that I keep fit for that. So you're about to do stage 6 in um, October, is that correct? That's quite right. It's from the 26th of October to the 1st of November. And that is between uh, Montague and Barrydale, if you can put it that way. And that's the Langeberg Traverse. So I'm really looking forward to that. I hear it's a bit easier than stage five. and But nevertheless, it's about seven, between seven and 10 hours hiking a day. Wow. Yes. Is this a slack pack hike? I mean, do you have to carry your own stuff or is it transported for you? We will uh, um, carry a full pack and then they will drop like foods, fresh food every three days that you will share amongst your group. So you'll carry your tent and mm. your your clothing and whatever but you know when you're up then high on the rich line you don't worry about certain things you take a, a clean set of clothes and and you you know you don't do makeup you don't do hair and and that's also quite nice that's quite nice to get absolutely. away from that for a bit absolutely <laughs> now galio these these sections that you're doing are there can people do them by themselves are, are there some self-guided sections or are they all guided Yes, well, actually, sorry, Karen, to get back to your, your question initially, you asked or you mentioned that the there's four, four different ways mm. you can engage with the, with the Rim of Africa Trail. And um, we have self-guided sections, and those are primarily in, in Cape Nature existing reserves. Um, we have a very close relationship with Cape, Cape Nature. You know, they sort of the, the, or the conservation authority for a lot of the, the uh, state sections of the land that we actually walk through. And um, so the self-guided sections are on those. And then on all the private land that we cross, and we've got like over 160 different private landowners that sort of make up the Rim of Africa route, and it's on those sections of, of property that we have agreements that, um, you know, we need to, those need to be led by Rim of Africa trail leaders. So in that sense, one then has to uh, include a, a trail leader in one's, in one's party. And then we have a, um, a slack pack, what we call a pack light experience on the Rim of Africa, where your packs are transported from camp to camp. Um, on most days, on some days it's not possible because we're quite high up in the mountains. And then we have what we call the through-hike. And the through-hike is this classic, really extreme adventure experience where uh, people do the entire journey in one, in one kind of go. And I think Michelle would have, would have probably grabbed that last year if, if it was an option on the table. Um, so she's now doing, completing her kind of through-hike over a period of, of, of years. And um, it's very exciting. So, yeah. And size of groups, Michelle, how many were with you when you've been doing your sections? They take a maximum of 12 on each stage. So um, that was quite something different to, to handle because um, at every stage new people came in and others left. 
So you had to really stay focused, but that was so exciting to meet the people, and that's also a very important part. Is it the same number for all the groups, um, Gallio? Yeah, pretty much. Uh, um, uh, Karen, yeah, you know, we have, uh, yeah, it's pretty much, uh, uh, although we feel the ideal size is actually about eight people, depending on the nature of, of some of the sections. You know, some of the sections are very extreme, sort of borderline mountaineering. And in that instance, it's actually more preferable to have a slightly smaller group. Are you finding this is, more, is being taken up more by locals or are you getting a lot of international visitors coming to do the hike? Well, I'll tell you what's quite amazing, uh, Karen. With, with, with Rim of Africa, for some reason, you know, last year we had, um, well, for some reason, we've got a hell of a lot of exposure in, in America and Europe. And uh, last year we had a young National Geographic young explorer uh, walk with us. And uh, he actually did the entire route. Uh, you know, he walked right through all eight stages, and he was the first person to do that. So you can imagine he was blogging every day and doing a sort of multimedia trail journal, and it's all on our website. People can go and, and, and check it out, what he did and his, his first-hand experiences. So obviously he got a lot of exposure with National Geographic, um, which has been very exciting for us, of course. And he completed that journey um, up until stage four, I think, uh, with a colleague uh, from uh, Ocean View in the South Peninsula of Cape Town, a young chap called um, Ricardo Philander. And it was, his op- it was an opportunity for, for, for Ricardo to get out there and experience this trail. He had never been camping before. He had never been so, so long away from home. So these two young men you know, really had an amazing adventure. And the exposure we got in America um, has been phenomenal for Rim of Africa, and we get a lot of inquiries. Um, from the states, but basically, it's mainly South Africans who've who've walked out with us so far. And really, you know, Rim of Africa is something we feel that South Africans can be really proud of. It's really our first major mega distance trail in the country, and um, you know, on the likes of the Appalachian Trail in America and the Tararua in New Zealand, and and like the, the Lebanon Trail in Lebanon. Um, you know, when when Ivan conceived of this 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 trail initiative some some years ago. Um, Recent research has shown us that there was a, a kind of plethora of trail initiatives that started happening at the same time. So it's kind of, we're sort of in a, in a global trend, if I can phrase it like that. Yeah. Isn't social media just absolutely fabulous? <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not so sure. <laughs> well, I mean, not personally, but, well, yes, for other people, let's put it that way, for other people. Yeah, absolutely <laughs> it is. You know, that's one of the things we did last year with Jay, um, the, the young American guy. In, um, you know, he was blogging every day, and, and not every time could he get signal. But when he did have, we had a lot of landowners, for instance, who were very keen to see exactly where he was and what his next sort of destination was going to be, and really could follow him on the social media side, which was fun, I guess. Yeah. Michelle, tell me some of your experiences while you've been walking, and because you have really been walking. So tell me about some of the things and some of the highlights for you on the, the, the sections that you've done so far. Um, I must say, it's. Um it's the time that you realize we've got a beautiful country. The Cape nature is absolutely awesome. I've only been a year in Cape Town for a year and four months, and I've been hiking all over our country as well, and as you said, Nepal and India and some of the other places. But um, the Cedarburg Wild Traverse was, was good. And then when you go on into the Hicks Valley High Traverse and the Langeberg High Ridge Line, that was awesome. Extremely challenging, very high on the ridge line, and um, yes, the, the scenery is beautiful, but it's what the Room of Africa offers you also is um, a time to reflect. And it's an opportunity for, for personal growth and development during that time of reflection. And what they also build in is um, silent walking. 
and that is where you get the time to do uh, you know that to connect with your inner mind and your inner soul and um, where you reflect and that is where the personal growth is taking place so this is a slightly structured walk it's not just sort of let's go and you all start marching off to wherever no, you're going it's too by far too dangerous by far too dangerous and then you get time to to walk in silence every morning a galio also wakes you up with some sort of musical instrument and at a suitable place during the day he also reads a poem or whoever wants to read a poem can read a poem and I find that it is not only the physical challenge, it's also mental and um, good for the soul. And I personally learned a lot from this and I can't wait to get back on, on the room of Africa. Because you re you've really got a convert here, Gallio. Yes, we have, Michelle. I'm sorry, Michelle, I'm calling you Michelle. It's, it's okay. Karen. <laughs> um, Karen, uh, you know, one of the things with what we've discovered with, with, with this particular trail is the longer people walk for, the, the deeper their connection both to self and to nature um, uh, becomes. And, you know, Room of Africa, you know, our primary statement in our, in our founding documents are about fostering a reconnection to nature and the self and to cultural transformation through connection with nature and through walking. And um, so we, we find, you know, that when you're in a, in, a, in a group of about eight or 12 people, it's very important to have a period of quiet during the day so that you can really connect with where you are can connect with the, with the birds, you can connect with the plants that you're seeing, you can connect, connect with the spirit of the mountain. And, um, and working with poetry is this wonderful, you know, we've got some amazing poets in this country. And it might sound kind of crazy, you know, poetry and hiking, but the, the truth is, um, a good friend of mine mentioned once that, that poetry is essentially the language of ecology. And I certainly find that to be the case. And the poems we use are very carefully selected to plant a seed in the walker's sort of psyche, um, that as they're walking, it gives them something to really think of and, and contemplate. And um, yeah, I think it's that aspect that, you know, folk like Michelle really feel is, um, uh, yeah, it's, it's, that's something different that Room of Africa kind of affords one to engage with. Talking about something different, I was reading on your website that next year you're going to be holding the Wild Story Theme Trail. Tell me about that. That sounds fabulous. Yeah, in fact, we, it'll be the second time we're doing it. We did it last year in November, uh, working with an international storyteller from the United Kingdom. And uh, she's just, first of all, a fantastic storyteller, and that's really, the, I guess, the bottom line. But the wild story was uh, a bit of an experiment. We were testing out a concept, and it was a brilliant, brilliant uh, trail experience. We, we basically stepped under the stars, so we didn't take tents, um, which made, meant your packs were much lighter. And we did a beautiful circular route, and the idea was really exploring personal wild stories and stories in the wild and the craft and art of storytelling. And, um, you know, all these things are, are just great. You know, in fact, anything that one does outdoors, in nature, on trail, whether it's singing a song or, you know, working with poetry or telling stories or, or just having a really good time with friends, it usually, uh, usually ends up being just fantastic. Has this changed your life at all? Michelle, Michelle, has this changed oh, your life? Sorry, I was looking at her. I should have said her name. Um, has, has this changed you in any way? Oh, yes, definitely, Karen. I'm a lot more focused. And um, you really think, but can I do this? And eventually you do. And um, anything is possible. You, you start to, to, to develop a certain sort of kind of bravery and courage, you know, because you know that it is actually possible. Definitely. I'm a lot more braver. I'm actually an introvert. And you wouldn't say that, but um, yes, and um, I'm a lot more focused. And I developed, you know, stuff like 
uh, resilience and a bit of tenacity. And as I said, which I think you'd need doing the kind of things you do. It's extremely <laughs> tough. It's really challenging, but it's so rewarding. It's really so rewarding. And what's going to happen when you get to stage eight? And then what? Stage eight. That would be, um, I think, a time for me to celebrate because it meant that I would have hiked from Cedarburg all the way to Edo Elephant Park, and then I would have to bribe Galio and Ivan to see where Rim of Africa is heading after Edo, you know. <laughs> I think maybe into Africa somewhere. But surely um, we're going to continue with this journey. Oh, there's a challenge for you there, Galio. Mm, I tell you <laughs> what, Karen. <laughs> I've got Mich- a lot of tricks up my sleeve, let's put it that way. And get Michelle to try out your roots, if you've got any other sort of roots you've been thinking of. There's definitely yeah, well, someone you know to what has really out. been amazing, Karen, over the years? You know, I've been doing this now since sort of 2006. And one builds beautiful friendships with people that come with you on trail, and and usually at the end of a trail, uh, you know, a really good a, a really good trail experience, people say, okay, so what are we doing next year, you know? Mm-hmm. And then th- th- they do put the pressure on a little bit. I have to keep coming up with exciting new sort of walking opportunities. Well, keeps you on your toes at least. Uh, it certainly does. <laughs> well, I've really enjoyed chatting with both of you. Thank you so much for joining me on the show this evening. I'll give out all the contact details. And if people are interested in doing, they don't have to do the whole 52 days, but if they want to be like Michelle and do section by section, or possibly even find out about the Wild Story theme trail that's coming up in March next year, they can uh, get in touch with you. But uh, Galia, it sounds like you've got a lot of work to do. Michelle's getting to near to the end of her, of her sections, and she's going to be looking for something else shortly. So come on. You know, you're going to have to come up with something else. Well, you could always go back to the start and do it again. You know, that's always another option. The, this idea of a pilgrimage in nature is, is the way to go. Galio Sands, thank you so much for joining me. And Michelle Frondoff, thank you so much for joining me in the studio. Great pleasure. Thank you. Galio Sands from Room of Africa and Michelle Frondoff, as I mentioned, an intrepid hiker. We're chatting there about the Room of Africa. And if you'd like to find out more, you can call Anne Riley on 76 Four five three two three double six for bookings. That number again, oh seven six four five three two three double six. Or you can take a look at the website. It's www.roomofafrica.co.za. Time to travel with Karen Key. Well, for someone who was banned from riding motorbikes in his youth, Greg Beadle is certainly making up for it now. He's just published his second book on motorcycle adventures. The first one was called Bike, Tar and Gravel Adventures in South Africa. And this new one is called Bike, The Longer Road, Adventures Across Southern Africa. And they're both published by Map Studio. Greg, good evening. Welcome to the show. Good evening, Corin. Thank you for having me on your show. So, after having been banned from riding mot- motorbikes, you're certainly making up for it now. You've been riding, riding all over the place. Most definitely. I think, uh, you know, being uh, really loved by my parents, it made good sense in my youth. But most definitely, I couldn't agree more. From the age of around 26, I've been uh, spending a lot of time on two wheels and enjoying exploring our beautiful country and the surrounds. So your first book, as I mentioned, that was focused specifically on South Africa. And this time around, your second book, you've actually gone throughout Southern Africa, eight countries, I believe. Yes, Karen. The first book is, is based on, it's, it's a collection of three to five day adventure trips on a motorcycle. So, you know, you, what do I want to do this weekend? Where should I go? Where should I take my motorcycle? With a passenger or without? It kind of guides where to go, where to stay, who to meet, what to expect along the way. And the second book is an extension of that, where it covers Southern Africa, as you mentioned, the eight countries. And it's, uh, it covers eight to ten day adventure trips. Now, looking through the book, there are five routes that you've got, you covered in the book, and you didn't do all of them, shame, unfortunately. I'm sure you're going to at one stage, you'll possibly have already <laughs> done them, but you were very generous giving them out to other people to do. 
Well, Karen, actually quite the reverse. I was really grateful to have oh. uh, three, <laughs> three contributors come on board. You know, often, we, uh, like with this project, we had quite a tight uh, deadline of turnaround time and quite a lot of traveling to be done. You know, I know, know most of these areas myself, but it's about collecting uh, a library of images with motorcycles in it, as well as those personal stories that, that uh, the three people who kindly contributed could uh, really contribute to the book with their, person, their personalities coming through in the, way, in the, the style of writing. So let's just go through quickly from where you start. The first route is Cape Town to Vintook. Correct. Uh, you know, I'm based in Cape Town, and uh, we're very uh, lucky to have the surrounds here. Uh, a lot of riding you can do all the way to Vintook. Uh, you know, I mean, we all know it's Fisher River Canyons, the Orange Rivers of the world, but some amazing vistas taken and experiences along the way. This book, it's very much more of a sort of a travel guide, effectively, that you can pop in your saddlebag and take off with you. Correct. You know, it's not, it's not, it's not necessarily how to ride your motorcycle mm. or how to steer or how to balance. It's really a travel guide. And, you know, what's interesting for the first book is I had quite a lot of feedback from readers and, and purchasers of the book who actually have never ridden a motorcycle. They, they drive 4 by 4s they uh, explore on, on, on mountain bikes, or even, you know, like your previous guests are into walking or hiking, and they find relevant information they wouldn't have found elsewhere in, in these travel guides. But it's not, it's more than that. I'm going to get to the other routes in a moment, but it's more than that because you've got, at the start of each chapter, you've got things like appeal of the route. So you give people sort of highlights of what they would enjoy if they did that particular route and you give them the preparation list. And I was looking at the gear guide. Gosh, it's very big, the gear guide, but I suppose you can pick and choose what you need to take with you. Well, Corin, you know, it's, it's one of my passions. Is, is my, all my life, I think, for young boys, really, is gadgets and gear. And I've always been, I've been lucky enough to be given quite a lot of gear along the way to experience and to try out and give, give feedback on. And uh, how, how lucky am I, you know, to be able to experience and, and give feedback and share what you should or shouldn't use according to my experience. You mean you even get as, as practical as how to cook or what to cook when you're traveling along on your bike? Yeah, I mean, that's just quite easy because it's mostly <laughs> freeze-dried food, which didn't yeah. uh, get us on it didn't go down so well with my girlfriend, but uh, I really uh, find the convenience in that. But, um, yeah, I mean, there's a lot to it, sleeping bags, tents, even down to eyewear or camera gear, how to pack it, what to take, what, what works, what wouldn't work, but really leaving it up to the, the readers so they decide themselves what they need for their trip. And you also give people some idea of how difficult that particular route is going to be, how long it's going to take you, all that sort of thing. Correct. There's a technical rating of how technical a route is. And in the first book, it can be a little bit more accurate because it's a shorter route. The longer routes into Africa, who knows, you know, changes on a weekly or monthly basis. But there's some kind of guide or sense of what to expect, which I think is so important these days and before heading out on, a, on an adventure of that kind of duration. So we mentioned Cape Town to Vintok, and then the second route is Mount to Vintok. Yes, it's written by Stefan Bossoff, who's based in, in, in the Brufferton area, a really experienced um, I want to say understated, the wrong word, very quiet individual who's brilliant with a motorcycle, excellent with a camera, and uh, with first language Afrikaans, writes brilliant English uh, storytelling too. And Route 3 is Mount to Harare via Vic Falls, and you did that one. Fantastic. Yeah, my first issue to my first uh, experience of, of uh, the heart of Botswana, and uh, we'll definitely be back for more adventures in Botswana, a really special place. And in the last two routes, you also farmed those out, as you said, gratefully. <laughs> yes, you know, just the, the, the story behind that, the fourth route uh, by a good friend and uh, motorcycle instructor Wayne Shepherd uh, covered the Mozambique region and, and parts of Zimbabwe. Uh, I was aiming to do the uh, the fifth chapter, which is around South Africa, 
but unfortunately with time and uh, budget constraints, I was very kindly uh, um, got involved with uh, Tiana Snell, who um, has his own magazine and TV show, and he had already done the route as a, as a challenge to see how quickly he could, he could get on the perimeter of South Africa. So that was actually nice because you've got quite a different array of people doing them, but all doing the pretty much a similar style of putting it together for the book. Yes, definitely. I mean, basically editing it and, and kind of keeping the style similar, the format the same, um, but telling different stories uh, really, really comes together. And um, one, yeah, one of the things you can't go wrong with as well, the maps are fantastic. Exactly. I was going to say now, you know, we learned from the first book and how to give more detail. We took readers' feedback on what they prefer and what they enjoyed. And uh, obviously at the beginning, there's a map of the whole uh, Southern Africa so you get a sense of what you're covering when, uh, when, when buying the book. So you can't get lost, hopefully. Well, <laughs> one thing I did mention, you know, you know, the first book I mentioned, I enjoy following my nose and, and using hard copy maps rather than using these modern uh, GPSs. Mm. But definitely when you venture into unknown territories, uh, uh, quite a few occasions, I was definitely saved by the, the modern technology of the, the GPS. I liked specifically one of your top tips. I actually made a note of it because I thought this is, it's so simple, yet it is possibly one of the most important things or some of the most important things. You say here, yeah. top tip, plan and plan again. Make sure you are fit riding fit and know how to change your bike's tires and how to fix a puncture. I mean, those, those are very practical things. Because the last thing you want to do is be stuck alone on a deserted road, you and your bike and a puncture. Particularly, particularly in Southern Africa, there's some routes where you don't see people, you don't see vehicles, you don't see anything for a couple of hours and getting stuck out there wouldn't be the, 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 the highlight of, 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 of any motorcycle adventure. Now you said this was your first time up to Botswana and Vic Falls area. Um, what were the highlights for you with doing the sections that you did? Uh, the highlights were getting through the, 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 the sandy sections. There's, there's many, many kilometers of, of, of sandy jeep tracks with uh, 40 plus degree temperatures. But uh, I really think that the, the highlights uh, for, for us on that trip was really the, the interaction with, with the natural environment and the wildlife. You know, on the, on the eastern boundary or eastern side of Botswana, you've got many, many roaming uh, elephants. You've got big five game. There's no fences and nothing around you. Just you're really exposed, but you really get to feel like you're in what nature was across the whole continent at one stage. The other thing I was terribly impressed, the forward, as well as one of the stories at the back, you've done a whole section on getting to know some famous riders. One of those famous riders also wrote the forward for the book. And if people are motorbike enthusiasts, they'll certainly have heard of Charlie Berman. Yes, you know, uh, some people may not have heard of Charlie Berman, but almost everybody knows Ewan McGregor. And the two of them did uh, the, the Down the Africa thing together. Exactly. Mm. They did the long way around, initially yes. around, around the whole world, and then long way down uh, through Africa. And that was the first time I actually met Charlie, spent some time with uh, Charlie and Ewan on the last couple of days of that trip. And then uh, three or four times after that, I got to know Charlie a little bit better. And I thought, why not? You know, let me, let me, ask, let me ask the guy, would he be interested in doing a foreword? And after some persuasion and negotiating, um, he managed to uh, yeah, contribute to the book, which is a great, great honor for, for me and for Math Studio. Now, you know, we, there's a lot of books out there dealing with trails and, and heading out into the great African continent, but they're mostly written for four by fours. Um, I don't think I've really seen a series of books written for motorbikes. Yes, you know, there hasn't been much done. There's been, you know, one or two story, stories told which have made excellent reading um, on local content of pe- people's personal experiences. But in terms of travel guide, yes, it is fairly new. You know, there's the, the a trend towards riding motorcycles uh, out of towns and out of the more dangerous environments of road travel, in my opinion anyway, uh, is coming to the fore. And, you know, even you have the likes of, of Dion Mayer, who, is, who I'm a fan of in terms of his crime, uh, mm, his crime writing, mm. who's come out of the book, and it also makes some good reading. But, yeah, I think 
think you will see more books sitting in the bookshelves uh, based on where to travel, where to go, and also how to ride your, your motorcycle. The other thing as well, I was in the book, just to give people some idea of what's in here, you also talk about accommodation, where to stay, that kind of thing. So it's pretty much a full-on travel guide for motorbike enthusiasts. I've tried to include as much as I can with, 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 with still leaving some uh, breathing space and, and sort of uh, recreational thought to, mm. to where to stay, where to go, to the reader. But really, like we mentioned earlier, preparation is everything. And we all know South Africa to a certain degree, but in Southern Africa, not many of us had the time or the, uh, the experience of actually venturing through these parts. And it's not written as a sort of a guide would be written with sort of listing things. I mean, it does list some things, but it's very much personal accounts, personal stories of the people who've written those particular chapters on those particular routes about their own personal experiences as they were traveling along. Yes, I think that was one of the, the first things from the first book is just to realize share your personal experience, make it a personal account of what you experienced and share as you would around the, the campfire. So, you know, just for myself, who I'm not a motorbike rider by any means, but for yes. me, reading your book, it was, I, I felt I was reading a book as opposed to a guide. So, I mean, you can use them in two, two ways. Either you can take it along with you as a guide or use it as such, or you can actually read it as a very entertaining, interesting book of somebody's travel log or travel journeys through Southern Africa. Well, I'll take it as a compliment. Thank you, Corin, and thanks for your, your, your thoroughness in, in terms of what you've uh, researched in the book already. Well, as I said, it's more than just the travel guide. What has the response been like to it so far? Still early days. You know, we had a launch in Johannesburg uh, two weeks ago and Cape Town last week. Uh, and then an evening function with Charlie Berman the week before. So it's been a busy three weeks in terms of getting the book out there. Um, so too early to say on the, on the second book. On the first book, we actually went into a second print run. So That's amazing. Five wow. of my best recollections were over 6,000 copies in the first book, which for a book is a pretty good result, especially for a motorcycle travel guide. That's fantastic. And I'm assuming that this won't be the end of it. Um, well, it's <laughs> kind of that, that dot, dot, dot. You know, yes. Let's see what comes next. We've got some plans. We're discussing options. And uh, being in a digital age, there's hopefully a move forward into uh, multimedia format. Do you have a website if people want to follow what you're doing as far as biking is concerned? Yes. Um, you know, being an adventure photographer being my foremost um, passion and career, they, I, I can be followed on Twitter is probably the easiest account, which is on Beadle underscore photo. So it's at B-E-A-D-L-E underscore photo, in P-H-O-T-O or beadlephoto.com would be the best way to actually follow what I'm up to activities-wise, including motorcycles and photography, video, and accounts of my trips. So people can find you and follow you once they've got hold of your book, finish that from cover to cover, and want to know more, they can either follow you on Twitter or go, is, is beadle.com, is that beadlephoto.com is beadlephoto. your website? Beadlephoto.com. And then my email address is in the uh, author's letter in the front of the book. Okay. I've got my email address, which is me at gregbeadle.com. But the best is website or Twitter at beadle underscore photo. Well, Greg, it sounds like a wonderful experience that you've all had on this, and we'll, we'll keep our eyes peeled for what's next. Thank you so much for joining Fantastic. me on the show this evening. Corin, thank you so much. All thank you. Thanks, you too. Greg Beadle is the author of Bike, The Longer Road, Adventures Across Southern Africa, which is published by Map Studios, and their website is www.mapstudio.co.za, or follow Greg on at Beadle, B-E-A-D-L-E underscore photo or the website BeadlePhoto.com. And Map Studio have very kindly given me three copies of the book, which I'll be giving to the first three callers. So you can call now on 0892 10 2010. Time to travel with Karen Key. Well, I'm joined in the studio this evening by Colin Bell. Now, he's been involved in all sorts of 
wilderness safaris and all sorts of things to do with the ecology and sustainability of our magnificent wildlife in Africa and well, specifically Southern Africa. And together with David Bristow, they've just put out the most amazing book. It's called Africa's Finest. And he's going to be just telling us this evening a little bit about the work that they've done. It's taken quite a number of years to put this together, but seriously, well worth the effort. Colin, good evening. Welcome to the show. Hello, Corin. Nice to be here. So Africa's Finest, an amazing, supposedly coffee table book, but I'd like to think of it almost as a reference guide, personally. Um, tell us a little bit about what inspired you to do this with David. Well, I think both David and I have been in the tourism industry for a long, long time. I started in 1977. I was very lucky as a young boy. First job out of university to go and work up in Botswana. And over the years, we've seen so many issues crop up in the tourism industry, which have really shocked us. We know there's been lots of very good people around and there's been some shockers. And there's this term greenwashing going around. Mm. I was going to ask you to explain that because you mentioned that quite often. What exactly is greenwashing? Well, greenwashing is where people go out and they trumpet all the great things they're doing for the planet, whether what they're doing with wildlife, what they're doing with conservation, what they're doing for communities, etc., etc. But for many people, and not all, fortunately, but for many people throughout Africa, greenwashing is this great way to go and market that you're doing extraordinary things for the world. But deep down, when you start to scratch through the veneer, they are certainly not green. They're more shocking pink and bright red <laughs> where they are more they, – a lot of these companies are causing damage to the planet as opposed to being green. and what, So their marketing is quite different to the actual uh, reality. I mean, we found some companies which have won the most extraordinary awards for environmental greatness and all the rest. One company is up in, in Zambia where we had the Virgin Environmental Awards – for many, many times. And yet when we went out in the back and we found that they were inside a national park, they were digging big pits inside the national park to dispose of, of their rubbish, where all they needed to do was they needed to take a truck on a regular basis once a week, truck it all the way out to Mfui where there's a proper sort of waste disposal area. But they, they were too lazy, they were too uh, maybe cost-conscious, and they were destroying the very environment in which they were supposed to be uh, looking after. They had sewage, raw sewage going straight into the wetlands. And yet this company won massive environmental awards around the world. They were touting the awards. They were talking about all these environmental great things they were doing. And yet, when you scratch below the surface, they were the, one of the biggest polluters. So there was a very good example of a company which was greenwashing and had conned a lot of the environmental invigilators around the world into what great work they were doing. But the reality was that they were the eco-pirates. And throughout, throughout the sort of decades, David and I have seen so many of these examples where people have been trumpeting ABC and in reality they were doing the opposite. And we felt that there was no real way to expose these fellows. So David and I were in a situation that we were both independent. We had to be independent for this book, otherwise we would have had people saying that we had vested interests. So we both resigned from every single tourism operation we were involved with or invested in. And we assembled a team of environmental scientists, people who've got BSc environmental science, and David's an environmental scientist himself. And they traveled the length and breadth of Africa. And we went and, first of all, we sort of trawled through and we came up with a list of about a thousand potential lodges and we started looking at them from afar and we whittled it down to a couple of hundred. And we probably came up close to 300, which we thought were suitable candidates. Uh, for some kind of greatness. 
And uh, we went through the, the process. And the only way we could actually really work out if a company was green or not, we had to go and visit them on site. So we had a team of environmental scientists who traveled around Africa who went and inspected every single one of the, the lodges which we had shortlisted. And when you think of all the thousands of lodges in Africa you th and you hear about all the good things that everybody's doing, you think that there would have been hundreds and hundreds of great candidates. And yet the sadness of what we found is that we only found 50 great, truly, truly great lodges all the way through Africa out of all the thousands. The rest of them had huge blemishes. And that, in our view, was, was a great sadness. And the aim of this book was to try and create a benchmark and a sort of a, a reference where people could actually take this book and say, okay, let me go through my operation. Let it go through from one end to the other. Let's see what we need to change. Let's go and do an internal audit ourselves and use some of these suggestions which we've, we've uh, listed in the book to come up with a checklist for ourselves. So we try to create, uh, and it's all in the very last sort of 20% of the book where we go through all the different things which we suggest people should be doing in the tourism industry. And, uh, and I need to stress, this is rural tourism. I'm not talking about city hotels and stuff like that. This is a very different project. This is rural African tourism, wildlife tourism, conservation tourism, community tourism. So we created this team who traveled around Africa, and they went to all these different lodges, and we whittled it down to the 50 top, top ones. And then we, there was a whole lot of new lodges which were coming through, and there was another sort of 25 places to watch, which we sort of earmarked for, uh, we think, lodges which could be very good and there's another 25 or so which were nearly nearly there who with a little bit of tweaking and changing will make future uh, editions so in, in total probably a hundred lodges which we found really made the grade to a certain degree or will be making the grade if they continue what they've been talking about but the sadness was that there was a lot of lodges which were telling us all the great things that they were doing and when we got there on the ground we found the country and this book is, first of all, it's a coffee table book. And the reason why it's a coffee table book is that we need to get people to travel to Africa. If we don't get people to travel to Africa in reasonable numbers, we're not going to have a conservation industry. Uh, we need conservation desperately, but conservation without cash is purely a conversation. And so the only way we can get real money coming through is through the people visiting Africa. So it's targeted a lot at the overseas guests traveling to Africa, trying to get Mrs. and Mrs. Schwarz from New York City or from Delhi or from Sydney, London, Paris, wherever, to come and visit Africa. Because so much of the travelers in the Northern Hemisphere, very little comes to the Southern Hemisphere. And I think Africa doesn't get its full quota of tourists. So the intention on the one hand is to try and create the incentive great pictures, come visit Africa. The second part is a reference book where we're saying this is a, a proper book for people to use as a reference book. And so it's part coffee table, part reference book. But if, if you're going through the book itself, as I said, lots of interesting information, one of the things that will strike you and almost mesmerize you into not doing anything for an entire day, which is what happened to me, are the photographs. I mean, you were talking to me before we actually started, we came on air, was the fact that that was a draw card, especially for overseas tourists. I mean, those photographs are literally, well, let's just book the ticket now. We have to go. Yeah, we were very fortunate. And one of the things with David and I is that we've been around enough and we know a lot of the very good photographers. And some of the photographers gave their work for free. I mean, look at this front cover. This is yes. a guy called Martin Harvey. Who I think, shame now, this elephant is no longer with us, apparently. That, that front cover tells everything. It's that, just so it, sad. It's, it's, it's a lot of stories. I mean, when you look at that picture with Kilimanjaro in the background and you think, wow, I've got to go there. The sadness, Martin Harvey 
well, a lot of his photographs in this book. He's one of the great, great photographers of Africa. Pete Oxford, a fellow who um, lives in Marikele National Park. I mean, he lives literally in the, inside a national park. Pete is one of the great photographers of Africa. Uh, we've got people like Dana Allen in, in Harare, absolutely superb fellows who absolutely you gave us. They, they embraced the project and gave us their photographs to use. But that front cover, I think, sums up everything. It's the most incredible elephant, and that elephant is now dead. Not only is the elephant dead, it was shot by a poacher's bullet. If you look at the snow on Kilimanjaro, it used to be about a third of the way all the way down, and now it's just a little tiny little sliver at the top. It's a global warming story. What you don't see uh, in this photograph is that in this particular park, Amboseli, if you had to look on either side, you'd probably find 50 minibuses looking at an elephant like this. So we've got mass, mass tourism destroying a lot of what we should be conserving. Tourism could be the best conservator on the planet of wildlife areas. But if it's uncontrolled, if it's mass tourism without any controls, tourism can be one of the biggest destroyers. So this front cover tells a lot of different stories. It tells a story of what the dream should be. But it also, behind the surface, it actually tells quite a lot of the other side of it, the bad side of tourism. And part of this book is to try and create the motivation for the bad part of tourism to reinvent itself to, so that it can become the true conservator it has the potential to become. Well, even in the uh, lodges that you have selected for the book, you ha it starts each chapter starts off with this thing called the green box. And that's the good, the not so good, and some interesting facts. But so how good and how not so good are what you are describing for each of those destinations? Yeah, we felt that even the greatest lodges have got a few blemishes. And so what we try to do is be completely impartial and just say, right, some of these lodges, look at this, look, look what this particular lodge does, and summarize the good, the bad, and some interesting issues. I mean, there's one particular lodge in the Serengeti. Now, the Serengeti is this extraordinary system, which everybody knows about with the big migration. But what's known, not known uh, in many spheres is that the people around the Serengeti are some of the poorest, and they get very little of the benefits. Most of the benefits go to Arusha and Dar es Salaam and people overseas. And uh, the local folk who live around the Serengeti have been struggling. And along comes a fellow called Paul Tudor Jones and partners with a local company from South Africa called Sinkita. They've put 130 million US dollars into this project, most of it going into community work. And what they've essentially done is that they have sorted out a big chunk of the Serengeti's issues. I mean, it takes an extraordinarily wealthy man with a great, great vision. He'll never get his money back. But what he's done is put his heart and his money into making sure that this Serengeti system is going to survive as best as he can do it. And partnering with a great company like Sagita, the two together have come up with the most extraordinary combination of brilliance of operations. I mean, Sagita is probably the top company in Africa when it comes to quality consistently. And uh, they've partnered with a fantastic guy with Deep Pockets. And the two together have come up with a formula which is just extraordinary. One, their one project in, um, in Zimbabwe, they feed 20,000 people kids every single day. Now, it's an extraordinary number when you think that one company can do that. Can do that. One South African company in Zimbabwe is feeding 20,000 kids every single day. And yet a company which is doing such greatness has also got a few blemishes. And I think they're fully aware of it. Now, they still use generators to create the energy. And now they are looking at now converting from generators 
to solar. The other thing you mentioned to me earlier was the fact you're talking about this guy coming in with these thousands and thousands of euros and things to to make a difference. But what you were saying to me earlier is that in some cases, it, you don't need to spend that much money. In some cases, it could actually be saving them, them money to Ab- change slightly. Well, that's exactly it. You know, that there is no reason in today's world with today's technology and the price of solar that anybody in a remote area should be running a generator to create electricity. It's now cheaper for a person or a lodge to go and create energy from solar in a remote area because the problem, part of the problem in the remote areas is that it's the cost of the fuel, but it's also the cost of getting the fuel to that location. Then you've got to run a big expensive generator. If you convert to solar today, you can save yourself money. Not five years ago. This is the beauty of the project right now because five years ago, the cost for a, a watt of solar was around about seven US dollars a watt. Today, you can buy great quality solar, which is guaranteed for 50 years. It'll cost you 70 cents a watt. So the, the price of solar has plummeted. At the same time, the price of fuel, of diesel, has gone through the roof. And we've had this extraordinary situation where now a lot of companies in rural areas which are running generators should not be running generators. They should have a generator as a backup and they should be creating the energy from solar because the cost of solar is now so good and the technology is so reliable. So what you're basically saying is that there are solutions to all to most of these problems and there needn't be something where people think, well, gosh, I'm actually going to have to close my business because I can't afford all of them. Most of them, as you say, most of the solutions are actually going to possibly help you. Well, this is the beauty. In 2013, just about every solution is there. The technology has evolved to such an extent. Things like sewage. You can buy relatively inexpensive sewage plants which decompose all the sewage, so that by the end of it, it's almost pure Perrier, which comes out at the end. Now, 10 years ago, this was not possible, unless you had a huge, big, expensive plant. So you can go and take all your processed grey water and create water which is non-polluting. Now, if you go to places like the Telic River and the Masai Mara, water in the Telic River right now is probably in the region of 5,000 times too toxic for a human being to drink. The worst statistic is that it's 25 times too toxic for a human being to touch. Now, this is the very same waters in the rivers which the wildlife has to drink. Why? Because the tourism industry has not spent the money on sewage plants in the lodges. So they're getting raw sewage coming out from these lodges into these rivers, and that's polluting the rivers on which the wildlife has to survive. Now, it's wrong. It's simply wrong. As a tourism industry, we've got to look at ourselves. We've got to look at every individual component of our business and saying, what are we doing right and what are we doing wrong? How can we improve? Four basic things, energy, waste, communities, and conservation. And each one of those has got a different subset of issues which every single company needs to look at. And the great companies are doing most of that right. And that's why we have those, going back to what you said earlier about the the good and the bad and the interesting, because even the great companies still have room to improve. And in five, ten years' time, we'll look back and we'll be able to say, wow, we can even improve further as technology gets better and better. Now, even since this book has been out, you mentioned to me that you've had some reaction from people who didn't quite make it. And you are starting to make a difference because I think it's it's one of those things, because there's a website as well, which I'll get into in a moment, but it's one of those things that these lodges really want to be a part of they want to be seen to be one of the best so you are making a difference because you're actually inspiring them hopefully to change well we had a fantastic team as i said earlier 
And these people went around, people like Corin and Kevin Zunkel. These are environmental scientists. And part of the interchange with every lodge they went to is they sat down with them and, and gave them a school card at the end and said, this is what you're doing well. This is what you're doing badly. And that conversation started to go. And we found that in that conversation, a lot of people said, I didn't even know that there was a solution, or I didn't even know I was doing bad. And so the ability to interchange and interact with our different uh, lodges, which we went to visit, became part of the process. And we gave every single one feedback of what we thought they were doing great and what, where we thought they could improve. Now, some people have ignored it. Fortunately, it's the minority. But a lot of them said, wow, I didn't realize it. And they've now taken a lot of the comments and criticism as constructive, which is meant to be, and have started to change. And we've seen a quite a big swing already. Now, the book's only been out a um, couple of weeks, but the process behind the book has been going on for nearly three years. And that process has been an interesting process. And in that conversation we've had with our different lodges, yes, we've seen massive changes. And that's been the exciting thing. People have, I think most of the people in the wildlife industry do want to do good. It genuinely, yes, there are a couple of pirates out there who absolutely don't give a hoot. I mean, we had one organization in Mozambique who insisted that we paid them in Switzerland to go and visit them in Mozambique. I mean, one of the most bizarre... <laughs> Then he starts smelling a rat immediately. Well, exactly. It's we like actually, really weird. I said we're actually not even going to go and visit these folks because one of the most basic things is that the money must go to the country. Yeah, money well, can't go to somewhere else. Now, one of the biggest problems in, in our tourism industry is that a lot of the money goes offshore. You pay a person in Jersey or Guernsey or wherever it is, and the money gets dribbled down. There's a very, very famous company in Kenya which has one of the most prime locations and they have a deal with the community. They've got to pay a park fee, and that's about $45 per person per night, and then they have to pay 15% of turnover. This company for decades has been paying something like, uh, has been declaring that their revenue is $47 per person per night, and has been paying the community 15% uh, of $47. Now, they got caught out the other day. Finally, the community cottoned on. And when you go to their website, you'll see the charge is something like four or $500 per person per night. And they were being paid that offshore, dribbling into East Africa, the smallest amount possible to cover the food and the basics, you know, which they need to pay this, their staff, et cetera, et cetera. And the rest they were keeping offshore. Now, that's one of the biggest issues. We, it's called leakage. In the tourism industry, it's leakage. Now, fortunately, in Southern Africa, it doesn't happen that much because... Most people want to live here, and this is where they want their money. But in other parts of Africa, people have got into the tourism industry as it's a quick, easy way to move money around. Uh, it, it's one of the most basic things. A country needs to get its foreign exchange. Now, when, let's say, when we were asked to pay in Switzerland... <laughs> it just boggles the mind. <laughs> you just start saying, hang on, hang on, you just don't get the plot. And, the, and, and the, 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 uh, the marketing rep who was in South Africa tried to justify this. Oh, and she started to get all quite sure to him. He said, I'm sorry, hang on. It's just wrong that we have to pay you in Switzerland to go and visit you in Mozambique. So, well, I'm you know, glad you didn't go. Well, they're certainly not part of the book. Good. Right. The other nice thing, as I mentioned earlier, is that you have a website, africasfinest.co.za. And the nice thing about that, I mean, we've got the book, and that's the book. But the, the website is going to be it's, – it's fluid. There's going to be updates and, and changes. You're going to be seeing possibly new sites coming online that, that have improved themselves. You'll be seeing lots more information. So if people want to follow the story – africasfinest.co.za will be a continually moving experience, literally. There's that and also Facebook. Uh, David's doing a lot of uh, little stories on a sort of a regular basis on Facebook. 
And yes, on and the, would you on, just look for Africa's Finest on Facebook? Okay, absolutely. And then on the on the website, there's already some new lodges which have made it into different categories which weren't in the book. And as they've improved themselves, we update it. What we're about to do now on the website is to put the entire suggestions of how a lodge should behave. We've got a section called the Ultimate Green Lodge. And we're about to put that entire section there and all the links of the different uh, technologies which people uh, can look at to, to install in their different lodges. So we're going to dump that uh, now. And that's going to be a moving document. It's going to be continually updated because we want this as, to become like a source of reference where people who in the middle of nowhere don't know how to do things, they can just click on there, have a look, and uh, they can come through to us. We'll help them. We don't want to make a big fuss on that. We, if, the more we can help different operations around Africa to become more sustainable and more community friendly, whatever it is, we will help them as much as we can. Do you welcome comments from the general public who've possibly been to a lodge and Absolutely. seen something? Absolutely. Any suggestions? And, and, you know, one of the things as well is that out of the thousands of lodges, I'm sure that we missed a couple. And this is where people have been very good. What about this? What about that? And so, and then so you can look into it. Absolutely. absolutely. And also maybe there's, there's, they've seen different things about some of the lodges in here, which, you know, they actually aren't quite good enough. You know, mm. we all need to be kept on our toes, including ourselves. So if you're out there traveling and you come across something that you've spotted on the website or in the book, please, um, Colin and David, I'm sure would be delighted to hear from you. Definitely. So, I mean, if, if they've said something in the book and they've said, mm. gosh, they do this, that, and the next thing, and you get there, and there's no way that they're doing that because maybe David and Colin have disappeared. And uh, now they decide, oh, it's actually easier just to go back to doing what we were doing before. Please let them know. Because they won't be in the book anymore or on the website anymore <laughs> once they've been checked out. It's almost it's almost like a watchdog type of thing, which we need because we've got to the stage now, unfortunately, where people in some cases can't be trusted just to get on with it and do it properly themselves. Corin, you're absolutely right. And the tragedy of human beings is that mm. uh, sometimes people take cut corners, especially in tough times. Absolutely. And certain things we should never be cutting corners on because that's going to affect our viability going forward. Right, and if people are wanting to get hold of a copy of this book, Colin, via the website? Via the website or um, email one of us and we'll make sure we get it through. Probably the easiest way is just to go on to africasfinest.co.za with all the instructions will be on there if you'd like to get hold of a copy. Very worthwhile book. And as I said, you'll be literally mesmerized by those photographs. They are absolutely stunning. But don't forget to read the text because that's the real important part. And that's where we have to learn about what's going on on this magnificent continent of ours. Colin, thank you so much for joining me on the show this evening. And uh, hopefully we've inspired some people to take a bit more care and a little bit more note about what's going on around them, especially out there in the wild. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Corin. I was chatting there with Colin Bell, who, together with David Bristow, have produced this most magnificent book called Africa's Finest. And if you'd like to find out more about what they were doing, about the project itself, also if you'd like to follow what's going to be happening in the future, because as Colin said, this is a very fluid website, so you'll be able to find all sorts of things on there. It's www.africasfinest.co.za, and there's also details on there how to, if you'd like to get hold of the book, how you can possibly do that. So have a look at the website, www.africasfinest.co.za, and David Bristow is also running a Facebook page with the same name, Africa's Finest. So have a look at that as well. Well, for more information.
And just to get back to Greg Beadle's book, Bike the Longer Road, we gave away three copies and congratulations to Mike Brown in Durban, Haroon Kamisa in Rondebosch in Cape Town and Desmond Weeks in Grahamstown. Well, that's it for Time to Travel for this week. I'm Karen Key. Thanks for joining me this evening. And I'll be back with you next Monday evening just after nine with the Law Report when attorney Francois Smuts will be joining us and we'll be chatting about the law in general. And we'll also be touching on the law as it concerns women. Well, that's the Law Report on Monday the 16th of September. If you need any information about something you've heard on the show this evening, email me on travel at safm.co.za or take a look at the Facebook page, Travel on SAFM.